This is Dog Storian. Stories about dogs. And their people. And related species. Like cats. And this is me, Justina. And this is me, Brian. So I've been thinking a lot since our last episode about how wolves and people came to be together, how wolves became dogs. That's a very good question. And it would be all fine if, if it happened recently, but since it happened such a long time ago, how do we actually figure it out? I have no idea, but I'd really like to know. I think we have a person who could help us with that. Fantastic. So let's hear it. My name is Gregor Larson. I work at the University of Oxford. I work in the archaeology department where I'm the director of, it's a very long title, it's the Paleogenomics and Bioarchaeology Research Network. We came up with that name because it nicely formed the acronym BARN, and so we're the Paleo Barn, which means that we do a lot of research into the origins and dispersal and spread of a lot of domestic animals. We work on other projects as well, but we tend to get a lot of bones from domestic animals found in archaeological sites. And then we extract the DNA from those bones and uh, sequence that DNA and contrast it with lots of other ancient animals and lots of modern populations and lots of breeds and try to infer the population history and evolution of all of the animals that are so near and dear to ourselves. All of us have an instinct for what we mean by domestic or domestication, but really that's just a description of, of a set of characteristics or a relationship between us and a plant and an animal. And that description of the current relationship doesn't really tell us about the process of how we got there in the first place. And if we insist upon using words like event or something described one thing as domestic and one thing as wild, it kind of blinds us to even thinking about the ways in which different plants and animals may have come under different amounts of selection pressure because of their close association with people, sometimes spanning millennia. Humans aren't very good at long-term change, much less perceiving it. And we like our boxes. We like our discrete categories. And we like being able to say not only that this is a domestic dog and this is a wild wolf, but within dogs, we have our individual breeds. And every breed in that box is all, they're all identical. They all look exactly the same. They behave exactly the same. They all need the same diets. So we don't do very well with variation. And we certainly don't do with variation over a very long period of time. But it's only through that perspective that I think that we can properly get a handle on how and what happened over many centuries and many millennia with all kinds of different plants and animals. And it's, it's that variability that becomes much more interesting than just the straight domestication event. Somebody grab this, put it into a box, and now we have a domestic animal and you're done. You will have the floppy ears now because <laughs> you look more cute this way. So going then towards the dog domestication, what I find is that this case was sort of special because dogs were the first, at least known, first domestic, domesticated animals. So what was the dog's story? What's the journey? And that's a great question. I mean, I think partly because from the archaeological record, it really does look like dogs are the first animals that have a very, this, this kind of relationship that we now associate with domestication. And that that's taking place almost certainly in the Pleistocene. There are pretty good examples at 14 or 15,000 years ago of remains that seem to echo the kinds of changes that we expect to see or that we've grown accustomed to seeing when you get a close relationship between humans and animals. But I think probably because it took place so long ago and it looks like across a relatively wide geographical area as well, that has made it very difficult for us to try and pin down not just what happened, but how it happened. And 
as I was saying about a continuum, it's the further back you go into time, the less clear the differences are. So when does a dog become a wolf, as it were? When are you going to, and what characteristics are you using to describe dogginess versus wolfiness? And when do those first appear? And do those accurately reflect what we're really talking about, which is this change in relationship where you have two species that otherwise probably wouldn't have a whole lot to do with each other, now actually having quite a bit to do with each other and being buried in the same place and clearly having an association where they are there's a, a mutual benefit from them hanging out in very close proximity. How those different kinds of behaviors get recorded in the archaeological record isn't always clear, and that makes it difficult for us to understand how this process took place, where it took place, how many times it took place, and which populations were involved, and what, not necessarily, I don't want to say motivations because that sounds like it was goal-directed, but what were the circumstances in which this relationship started and then became and started to flourish from there? I think that there is certainly uh, the possibility that there was more than one population, discrete population of wolves that were involved. Although some of the recent evidence seems to be more consistent with the idea that it was probably just one population at a relatively discrete space and time, but that's uh, we, we need a lot more samples to really confirm that. I mean, we don't want to say anything concrete based upon a lack of evidence. We'd prefer to do it based upon the fact that we've been able to test all the other hypotheses and, and see what is is more likely and what is less likely. So why do you think this dispute is happening? I mean, why is it so important for us? What does it say about humans if we figure out more and more about dog domestication? Uh, so there's a couple of different questions in there that are, so one reason that dispute, well, not dispute, but one reason that there's a lot of uncertainty is simply because there's a lack of data. So I think, especially as we go further back in time, when you have a space in which you can tell a whole bunch of stories based upon just a handful of little bits of information, then a lot of different stories will match those little bits of information. It's when you start to get a lot more of that information together that you start eliminating certain possibilities because that data just simply doesn't fit with that particular story. Why it matters, I think, is because really, I mean, our species has been around somewhere between 250, 300,000 years or something like that. But it's really only in the last 15,000 years that people have started to form these relationships with animals and with plants that have radically altered not just our own biology and not just the biology of those animals with which we've had that relationship, but then the whole of ecology and, and the global earth environment writ large. I mean, you, we have eight or so billion people on the planet right now. You don't have anywhere near that. You don't have 10% of that if you don't have domestication. And because dogs were first, I think there's a particular focus being paid to them because I think that really signals a shift in the way in which humans have interacted with the environment around them and with the rest of the living organisms around them. And that shift has led to everything that we now take for granted about modern complex societies. And so if we don't understand how we got here from the very beginning, then really where are we? And I think the fascination with dog domestication really stems from the fact that we are fascinated by our own beginnings and we want to know what those are and, and dogs are very much a part of that. And until we understand that, we are just kind of not really certain about our own place in the universe. And that's kind of a, a weird, precarious place to be. And I'm also thinking about what are actually the genetical changes between different species when we are looking at the domestic animals. Do they all have the same genes? Yeah, that's a, that's a really active area of research. And it's something that's it's a bit of a, a holy grail that everybody would love to find the domestication gene, as it were. Like, what is it that changes in domestic animals that discriminates them and differentiates them from their wild ancestors? There are certainly individual traits that we know and plants, things like shattering or seed size, that we know that there is a genetic basis for. But a lot of the differences in animals, uh, especially dogs and wolves, has more to do with behavior. And behavior is not easy to pin down on the genome. 
it is a multigenic uh, effect that is it's really and it's not even necessarily the genes themselves a lot of times it's elements of the genome that cause differences in the promotion or in the volume or the amount or the timing of certain genes and that's much more difficult to try and pin down I certainly don't think it's the case that there is a single domestication gene that we're going to find that unites all of domestic animals simply because again what we're talking about is different relationships with different animals that are coming to these relationships with their own deep evolutionary biological history and that means that there's going to be different ways in which they respond to the kinds of selection pressures that are inherent in that shifting relationship. So when we try to domesticate an animal, we don't really know what we're getting ourselves into. When we do dichotomize between domestic and wild, we tend to assume that that dichotomy happened at a very early point and then was static thereon. And what we've learned a lot, not just from ancient DNA, but from looking a lot of the other characteristics through time, is that most of the change that we have seen now be, that differentiate wild and domestic is really only the last 200 years with the development of a kind of Victorian idea of breeds and closed breeding lines and uh, breeding for aesthetic purposes with, with stud books and the whole nine yards. And really, if you went back a thousand years, a lot of those changes in the genome that we are now assuming took place 5,000, 10,000, 15,000 years ago have really only taken place much more recently. So we are assuming that what we're seeing now was true a very deep, long time ago. And that kind of presentist philosophy really doesn't wash when you start to look at the genomes and the shapes of animals just going back even a couple hundred years. So this assumption that something big happened 15,000 years ago and then stayed exactly the same clearly isn't true. And so we need to be very careful about the kinds of questions that we're asking and the assumptions that we're making about how modern populations really are analogous to those even that existed even 500 or 1,000 years ago. And it looks very much like they just simply weren't uh, very similar at all. And that means that we need to be really investigating those populations in the in the recent past to see how different they are from the modern ones. And what is your current endeavor? Are you still researching dogs or have you moved on to another animal? I don't think we ever leave an animal. We've been working on pigs. I, I first started working on pigs and I just had a Skype call this morning for an hour all about another pig project that we're working on right now. So um, and we've we've slowly been accumulating domestic animals and systems and kind of theory over the last 15 years that we are uh, actively working on. So we've got a, a project that we just got some money for to work on rabbits, uh, and we're working on hares, and we've got another uh, meeting tomorrow morning about some black rats, and uh, of course a huge chicken project that we're working on as well. And so there's a wide variety of different, and we don't exclusively do domestication. It is our bread and butter. And uh, we've, we very much enjoy it. And it's always fun to add another collaboration, another taxa into it. But uh, really, we are a lab that is interested in just kind of change through time and relationships between humans and animals and plants and environment. And if we can, if there's a project anywhere along those lines that gets us interested, then absolutely we try and do that. There are still so many questions that are outstanding in, in evolutionary biology and domestication in general, and we're actively working on those to try and uh, hopefully get to the bottom of some of these things. Every time I say that we're six months away from a big insight, six months goes by and I think, okay, now we're six months away from another insight. Well, there are some big things coming down the pipeline that we're excited about, but uh, we don't have the smoking gun yet uh, in terms of dogs, and we're very much looking forward to maybe figuring that out. Of course, as soon as we do, we'll have to then change our questions. So the, the longer that we're still working on this, the more we can get some research funding to keep doing it. And that's, and that's what's exciting. And what has been the biggest finding for yourself during this journey? Oof, that's a really good question. I think I would have to say that what, what's been really fun for me, and this is another project we're working on with some pigs as well, is just the degree to which lots of different populations and even species can and do hybridize. 
and how much of a role, an underappreciated role, that's been playing in domestication for a very long time. In fact, I'm reviewing a paper right now that's looking at another animal that's been doing this. And what seems to be happening is you get a, a population of any particular species. It gets into close association with people. It goes through this, you know, what we would like to now call a, a, some sort of domestication process where there are changes that occur in the genomes and in the physiology and in the morphology of those particular animals. And they become very tightly linked with people. And as people start moving then with those animals across the landscape, they encounter other populations that of, of, of the same species or very closely related species that themselves did not go through that same process. But they're now not so different that they can't hybridize. And you can't create offspring from that incorporates a little bit of those wild genomes into your new domestic genome. And then you move to another place and there's another, a different wild population and that throws in some genomes into it. And we are working on several different papers right now that are in various stages of either review or production where it almost doesn't matter what animal you're talking about. If that animal is in close association with people and you move to a region where there's an animal that's very similar, there will be some kind of admixture. There'll be some sort of gene flow between the wild population that's there and then the domestic population that you've got. And that will manipulate and change and make even some cases more adaptable that domestic population that you've got. Firstly, the, the recognition of that, because a lot, I think a lot of times, and we made this exact same mistake in 2005, was seeing some of those signatures and assuming that it was a completely independent domestication process lots of times everywhere. And instead, what you've got is domestication, that initiation of that relationship is really quite rare. And then what happens is you start sucking in and hoovering up all of this other genomic variability that's in populations that are nowhere near those centers of domestication, and they start influencing those domestic populations. And cataloging the degree to which that's taking place and what those net effects are is something we're actively working on for a wide variety of organisms. And that's just fascinating to me because you could make that same thing true of people. Our particular species comes out of Africa. We start encountering other populations of, of hominins that are relatively closely related to us. And now what have we got left? Bits of Neanderthalinus, bits of Denisovan, bits of possibly other populations, these ghost populations that we haven't identified a sample yet of. So this this sort of move and mate and move and mate and acquire genome bits from all kinds of other things is true of our animals, it's true of us, it's true of plants, it's true of all kinds of different things. And access to large scale and high coverage genomes now is allowing us to ask those questions and really interrogate those genomes to see when and where and how those different processes took place to create what we now are made of. It was genomes of not just us, but a whole suite of lots of other things. And really looking at that, not just in our own species, but in all our domestic species as well, is really giving us a, a pretty deep insight, not just into our own genomic biology, but into kind of evolutionary biology writ large. If you were to set out, if you could travel back until we get before domestication happened with dogs, but you knew where you were headed, you knew what you wanted to achieve, you wanted to achieve where we're at today with the variety of breeds and the degree of domestication. I know this is a, an insane thought experiment, but how long could it take? Like, can you imagine if you knew what you were trying to accomplish. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so there are, these kinds of experiments are actually being run. There's, uh, and, and almost unintentionally, and this is kind of what I mean about when you say what you want, what, what you want to achieve, is that in terms of the, you want a pet that you can hang out with, or you want a population of fish that you can harvest in a lake that means that you can get maximum protein out of them? Or do you want a chicken that has phenomenal feed conversion so that for every gram of protein you give it, it converts 85% of that into its body weight? Or, you know, it's these 
these goals are, you can probably achieve a lot more than you would guess over a relatively short period of time, given the plasticity of, of just biology and, and organisms in general. But I think that speaks to a kind of assumption we make is that people forever have been trying to achieve things and, and we haven't. All of this is accident and a byproduct of just a closening of a relationship where you're taking advantage of a short-term goal, but the long-term idea of what's going to be happening is, you know, it's just, I mean, all you have to do is look to see where we were four months ago and nobody even heard the word COVID for Christ's sake to see how quickly things can change. So I don't know how fast we could achieve it because I'm not sure that anybody could ever have the foresight to know what is possible. So until you know what's possible, it's impossible. You can't set a marker out there and say, I want to get there as fast as possible if you don't know where there is. So, and I think most of human evolution is, um, is 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 just that and most of evolution in general is sort of just it's an accident and a selection pressure in short term and then an accident and then a byproduct and something else and it all just kind of fits together as this big melee of um kind of randomness really of of interactions and which isn't to say that there aren't short-term goals uh or, and certainly there are and people are trying to maximize things at any given time it's just that how that plays out over a little longer term seems to be much more contingent than directed you cited the victorian area and how rapidly sudden changes accelerated in terms of being interested in diversity of breeds and so forth. Do you think that's in part because people realized they could do that or that just became a stylish thing? I, you know what? I, and the word style there is, is absolutely crucial. Um, in fact, when we look, there's a really cool example in Japan of these wasps where the larvae are considered to be a delicacy. And so people and the wasps were all out in the forest. Well, if you want to ensure that you have wasps for the next season, wasp all over the next season, you start building kind of wooden structures to prevent the wintering queens from dying because it's from exposure. So you're protecting the resource now, and that's almost a kind of domestication as it were, because now you're providing a physical structure to ensure the greater survival rates, in which case you're changing the gene frequencies in this population. And because some things are surviving now that wouldn't have otherwise without the intervention. And so that is a kind of a, a, an intervention that is leading to a, a domestication scenario. But what's really driving the size of these things is not necessarily that people just want to eat them. It's they started having competitions to see who could grow the biggest one. And it's the same thing at any state fair when you're talking about pigs or chickens or watermelons or squashes or pumpkins or whatever. As soon as you have style and you have kind of a preference for and competition and a preference for extremes of things, and then you can start playing with all kinds of stuff. I mean, you just have to look at pigeon breeding and people are like, oh, you know, it'd be a lot of fun. Let's breed a pigeon without a beak. And they do it. So because they're just interested in the kind of the fashion and, and, and the competition of the other person who's breeding it, and can they do it faster? And so I think a lot of what evolution is when it comes to domestication over the last 200 years has been a selection for extreme phenotypes that aren't useful in any way, but they're just kind of fun. And it's this, this we have a, a penchant for novelty, which just can't be satisfied. So if you can get a dog that can't breathe because its face is too flat, let's do that. Absolutely. You know, let's get the biggest one we possibly can. And so we tend to breed for extremes in, in domestic uh, birds and, and, and dogs and animals and mammals and whatever else. And that's one kind of thing that really drives phenotypic change much faster than it would be done ordinarily if you were simply just trying to eat the thing. In fact, most of what we see in a lot of the marine mammals or in, in the marine resources that are now being quote unquote domesticated is that things get, they get smaller much more quickly. And that's difficult to maintain a size thing because you're just, you're trying to harvest them as much as possible. So you're going for a rapid rapidity of growth and that sort of thing where you're not, you're not in contest to try and pick something that's going to be 
you can take a picture of it and brag to about the other breeder next door of like, oh, look, I created one with only with six fingers. You know, it's just you, <laughs> the extremes aren't interesting for production, but they are uh, when you're talking about things that are much more, much more aesthetic. And as soon as you get into the aesthetic and you get competition, you can uh, biology is super plastic and you can drive all kinds of crazy change. But that's kind of what I mean. Like, I don't know that if you said to a hunter gatherer. 15,000 years ago who first had this relationship with a dog and whether it was a century or hunting partner or whatever else that relationship was or how that whole thing started that you say you know wouldn't it be fun if we made this thing uh, brachiocephalic so that we reduced its head super small and made its eyes really big and its ears super floppy like why would you do that you know what, what would be the point of that so I think that you only get that selection once you have a population that already exists for other purposes and that's kind of what I mean by kind of accident and byproduct of additional selection is that we keep we go somewhere and then we're like oh well that what would we go there and then oh well we, that's just kind of happened oh look at that we'll take advantage of that we'll make that happen so yeah I, I think that there is a lot less direction or at least if there is direction it's always almost predicated on an accident that took place before. Given the human penchant for this sort of thing, I'm surprised that it actually hasn't diversified more beyond dogs. But it's starting to. And this is, I mean, you look at with the, all, there's all kinds of crazy cat breeds that are being done now. These things called curls. And the, the issue with this, um, and horses, of course, you see like really big ones, really small ones, and lip is honors and the whole thing. The issue is that usually the extreme phenotypes are not neutral. They're associated with really bad things. This is why they don't exist in the wild. And so white horses also have night blindness. And a lot of the really fun characteristics that we see with dogs are associated with all kinds of other diseases that mean that they don't survive too terribly long. So we're actually creating these kinds of they might look cute superficially, but inside there's all kinds of stuff that's really bad about this because these genes are all linked to other aspects of their physiology and their development and their evolution. And so, you know, they might be cute in the short term, but really this is, if, if you're making a dog that can't actually give live birth and have to have a C-section, what are we doing here? You know, this is, it starts to get a little bit sketchy and it's solely because we just, you know, especially with white coloring. White coloring is often a very bad thing. And with the horses, you also get sunburn, you get all kinds of other aspects associated with it and ways in which the rest of your physiology starts to break down a bit more. But we still love them. I mean, there was a picture of a white giraffe on the BBC the other day and everybody's freaking out. You know, there's a picture of a white stag in Scotland about a year ago. They wouldn't say where it was because someone's going to go out and shoot it. If there's a white animal, we absolutely have to have it and we make a big deal of it. And that's why just about every single one of our domestic animals has white variants in it because it was something that was actively selected for, even though that same population in the wild would never, ever be white for a lot of very good reasons. Yeah, so this makes me, I guess, think about the reverse process if we were to arrive all the human beings from the planet Earth, which features then would be the first to be removed from our domestic animals? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a, it's a really fun thought experiment that was done just over a decade ago in a book called The World Without Us, where there was this idea that all humans just vanished, not through some sort of cataclysmic thing, which created a lot of other uh, negative things about the environment, but just people just, they're just not here anymore. And I think the extremes, a lot of these animals just don't exist for very long. And especially when you consider that so many of the animals now are required to be vaccinated, that have to have all sorts of antibiotics just to be able to survive. Like, and you remove the humans from that whole system. And now you, you, if you're not robust, you are dead very quickly. And so I think a large, a ridiculously large proportion of domestic animals and frankly, a lot of domestic plants as well, just go just vanish probably overnight. And to say nothing, you know, a lot of, many of them are locked up in houses and apartments. They can't get out. So they're dead. You know, <laughs> it's like there's all kinds 
of ways in which, but there, there these natural experiments are being run in places with this whole, uh, you know, feral chickens on Hawaii and feral pigs in Australia and feral pigs in the U.S. And so it's interesting, and I'm working with some people on this very thing. Um, there's some really cool feral pigs in Italy too, looking at that, as you say, that reverse process. Once you sever that relationship and you no longer provide the environment, the foods, uh, the care, whatever else that people are doing for these populations, then now they have to survive on their own. That is a pretty big shock to the system. And it isn't to say that these populations won't continue. I mean, look, camels in Australia are doing just great, thanks very much. And a lot of horses in the U.S. as well. And so there are certainly populations of animals that went through a popula- uh, went through a domestication process and then reversed, the, you know, they sort of broke up with people in a way. They're no longer in that relationship and they're still able to survive and get along very well in a natural environment, even if they retain some of those characteristics that um, are uh, an echo of that relationship that they had with people. Which is very interesting because we tend to think that we are the most influential factor. But if you had to put humans without animals and animals without humans, it's it's quite clear which one would survive better. And and you're absolutely right. Well, I think a lot of those animals would survive perfectly well. But if you remove the animals from us, you know, we I, there's that. Um, the dark material series, right? Where, what are they called? The, uh, the animals that are associated with the people. Yeah. So it's like when you, when you sever that relationship, the person dies, right? Then you, you have to have them there. And I think that same is true. If you removed from humanity, all domestic plants and animals, boy, it would be lights out pretty quick for a significant number of us simply because of most of what we eat is the result of that process. And, or, and certainly when you think about all the other materials that we get from that, and then the time that that allows because we have large populations and only a small proportion involved in the food production and the whole thing. So uh, yeah, I, it, would be, it would be curtains for us much faster than it would be for a lot of the other animals out there. So one last question maybe. If you get to know one fact from the very, very, very past any time, Which one would it be? I would like, I, I want to sort of like do a, a time-lapse photo, a, a time-lapse video of the beginnings of that relationship between people and wolves and that led to the dogs. I just, I would like to see, I have an idea of how that might have happened and I just want to see if I'm right. And I want, <laughs> I want to know, I want to see how long it took, I want to see where it took place and I want to see what were those shifts and how, it's almost like when you're dating, right? I have a neighbor who's, son was in an airport in Turkey and looked across the the hall and saw a Russian woman and she saw him and she didn't speak English and he didn't speak Russian and now they're married with two kids because they saw each other for 30 seconds and I you know sure right that happens right but I suspect that's probably not what but it's the same kind of thing what happened between this group of people and this group of wolves to where I mean were they sitting in an airport lounge just kind of making eyes at each other or what was that that sort of initiated that process because everything that has happened since then was that but what how did that happen and how did they overcome a lot of the other ways in which that relationship should not have started in the first place so yeah I, I you know give me give me a camera let me film it over about 100 years I'm guessing and just in the, just show me that population I just want to see and what are the key events that are happening along that way and how is that all taking place and I think that would be really fun I think Gregor cheated the way I cheated on this question. That was more than one fact. Yeah, true. But what you're doing is you're witnessing something that's happening. Mine was, was there a Big Bang? And I would love to get an answer, no. Because that would just make people's minds explode. <laughs> well, the Big Bang was hard to get your head around too, right? What was before the Big Bang? And yeah, man, this is crazy. We were talking about it the other day in terms of the you know continuous expansion. It's like, where is it expanding to, you know? No. Into a space that didn't exist. I mean, I can't. Imagine. Yeah, how is there a space that doesn't exist until it expands into it? Our brains are not good. I have this theory that um, we have we have evolved in such a way to be specifically incapable of understanding our own evolution. 
which I just think is kind of a neat idea. Like we are the product of something that we are now incapable of understanding, which that means that we're just going to be forever completely blind to our, we're just here. We don't under, we can't possibly understand how it is we're here, but we're here. <laughs> well, that was quite something, wasn't it? Unbelievable. <laughs> Man, he talks fast. <laughs> yeah, for us laymen, it's a bit sometimes hard to understand, but... Play it back at half speed. <laughs> Thanks, Gregor. And while we are here, I have another topic for us today. We didn't really talk about it with Gregor, but during the preparation, I came across a very interesting domestication-related experiment. You mean like something recent? Ish. Yeah. And it did involve foxes. Did you say foxes? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I thought we were talking about dogs, but I'm assuming there's a connection. Yeah. Let's say dogs were an inspiration for this experiment. Okay. So there was a scientist, Dmitry Belyev, and he decided to try and domesticate a fox. Briefly, he selected a bunch of foxes, which were more friendly towards humans, more calm, more playful, less shy, and he just kept breeding those individuals. Okay. And what happened within a few generations is that these selected individuals and their offspring became more and more friendly towards humans. And these selected traits, like friendliness and calmness, became more prominent. Okay, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, so meaning that some foxes became so so friendly towards humans that they even started wagging their tails and be much more dog-like than actual foxes in the wild. Besides that, also, like, a number of visual characteristics changed, such as their ears became more floppy and their tails started curling. Hold on. Wait a minute. Wagging a tail is one thing. Physical changes in the bodies you're talking about? Yeah. Happening, like, within this experiment's time span? Exactly. It was a few decades. Wow. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's crazy. Maybe one day we, we, will, we will find a scientist to talk about this experiment with us. But Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is amazing. I would love to go to the Fox place. <laughs> They're still running the experiment. But I'm just curious, why are we talking about this now? Because our next guest is a fox mom. You found a talking fox? <laughs> no, a human fox mom. She gave birth to a fox. No, but maybe let's just hear from Christina what she has to say. I can't wait. This interview is also very special because I've been recently working a lot on domestication topic. And the, the foxes, they come as a species, which is very special in this dog scenario. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe you could tell a little bit, how did you come to own foxes? My name's uh, Christina Waymink. I live in West Olive, Michigan, USA. My husband, his name's Dar. We did a lot of research. We're big animal lovers. We raised many different types of animals. We have four different dogs right now. Uh, we have two German Shepherds, a Pomeranian, and a French Bulldog. Again, we love having animals as part of our, our family, and that's really what they are. Furry family members are furry kids. It was quite a lengthy process to actually have Gaia and Anali in our home. And that's why we created the YouTube channel, just so we could tell people what it's really like to have life with foxes. So you don't just see all the cute little things online, uh, but just to really share with people the realities and how tough it can be. It was like, I said, it was lengthy and it took a lot of work. So they are not legal everywhere in the United States. Michigan does allow them, but there are many different stipulations. 
And one being is you cannot obviously take any foxes from the wild. So I actually contacted our state Department of Natural Resources, the DNR, and also our state veterinarian just to find out what legal right we had to acquire foxes. We finally did get approval from the state saying you can have foxes, just making sure, again, that they don't resemble ones from the wild. So that would be the traditional red, uh, North American red fox or gray fox. Just making sure that you have, you know, proof of purchase, having health certificates. Then we had to go to our township to make sure we could have local approval. Our township ordinance said nothing about foxes, of course. And we live in a rural area. I knew if we were in the city, it would probably be a big no. So I contacted our township office. The secretary said, well, yeah, maybe. I said, well, in the ordinance, it says other small household animals. So would a fox be considered an other small household animal? And she's like, well, probably, but let me double check with my supervisor. So she called me back and the supervisor said no. And then he says, but you can you know, appeal that to the board of trustees if you'd like. I'm like, yes, when's your meeting day and time? I will be there. Um, so, <laughs> so we put together a whole proposal presentation, you know, with research, case studies, and we brought it to the board of trustees for approval. Um, so after I think it was like two weeks or something, I followed up and called them I'm, and I said, what did your attorney say? And they're like, well, we're going to go ahead and let you have foxes. <laughs> so when we went to select Anali and Gaia, we intentionally made sure that they did not represent or look like ones from the wild because we didn't want any question or mistake that they were ever taken from the wild. So that's why I chose Gaia. She's an all white or high marble white North American red fox. And then Anali, he is a smoky color or pearl color North American red fox. So they're both color variants from the uh, North American red fox. So the thing that you mentioned as the main condition is that they have to not resemble the wild fox. Is it just a visual distinction or, or does it also contain any biological changes that you have to prove that this animal has? Sure. Well, one thing that would guarantee that they weren't from the wild was a health certificate and a, a sales receipt saying where you purchase them from a, a farm. Um, and one thing else I didn't point out, too, is we didn't go with an Arctic fox because according to our state law, any animal that is outside of North America would be considered exotic. And our township ordinance specifically says we cannot have exotic animals. So so it's nothing that we would ever have testing done to show that what their genes are, whether they've been domesticated or not. There's been some recent research about the domestication syndrome and if that's valid or not. There are no traits that would suggest that they were domesticated as far as floppy ears or curly tails or anything like that. They have the standard wild fox traits, just the different color variation. So how old were they when you picked them up? Do you remember that moment? How, how did the selection process go? We found a place called Tiny Tracks in Indiana, who's been raising foxes on their domesticated farm for probably, I think it was nearly 40 years. In the 70s, the owner worked at a fox fur farm, and he ended up wanting to have them as pets rather than have them slaughtered as fur coats. Um, and fell in love with the foxes and began breeding them. It's a process where we put our names on a list. I believe it was the fall of 2017. 
And then in 2018, when the kits were starting to be born, and I fell in love with Gaia, the white-colored one, and my husband, his little boy, Anali, the pearl-colored one. And then we were finally able to bring them home when they were about five to six weeks old. Presumably, with all your research, you must have had an idea what you were getting yourself into. And the more research you did, it become even more obvious how much work it was going to be. What what were you hoping for? I mean, that's it's not like having a dog. I mean, it's you said they're they're not particularly domesticated, at least physically. I don't know if you have something to tell us about their behavior, but if they're not domesticated, they're wild animals. And what were your hopes in terms of the experience? Sure. Well, we didn't really know what to expect. We knew they're going to be a handful, but we didn't know how much. And I'd say they're on that fine line between wild and domestication. You're exactly right. They're not like dogs. People cannot get a fox thinking they're going to get a dog because foxes do what they want. Dogs have loyalty and obedience to some extent. Foxes do not. Uh, (laughs) It's their world and we're just living in it and have the honor of feeding them and housing them. It could go either way. A lot of it depends on the owner and how they're going to raise the animal and if they're going to bond with the animal. So we made sure right when we brought them home that we bonded with them, spent time with them, played with them put those expectations out there, just having them model that behavior that our dogs were doing. Um, So I think it's been very helpful that we have dogs in the home so they can kind of look up to them and see how you need to behave in a home, but they don't always do that. Big challenge that we've had is making sure they don't destroy your home. (laughs) And Foxes wouldn't do that. Foxes wouldn't do that, would they? been a challenge and we don't want to discipline their natural behavior out of them that's not fair they didn't ask to be changed into dogs so we want to respect who they are their natural behaviors but we just want to make sure that we can contain it so we don't have them trash our home so foxes like to dig and scratch and bury and hide and um, all those fun little things and it did take probably at least almost up to two years to try to kind of break them of that or Um, you know, show them that that's not correct behavior. We don't spank or yell at them um, because that would just break your bond and make them fear you. Of course, we don't spank our animals anyway, and it's not like you can catch a fox to spank them. They're just so fast. But they each have their own personalities, and um, just watching them, their behavior and how they interact with us and the dogs, and just seeing how Anali and Gaia are very different from one another. We've just come to love them as, again, our furry, furry kids. So how does your typical day look like? Can you like leave your house for a couple hours and expect that everything will be in place or that's just a no-go? <laughs> no, you don't leave foxes unsupervised. A lot of people say they're cat dogs, like they're cats and dogs, and they have some similar behaviors like those types of animals. But I'd also say that they're all more like toddlers, hyper toddlers that cannot be left unsupervised. So Guy and Anali have their own space, their own playroom that they stay in, they hang out, they sleep and whatever when we cannot supervise them, like during the night or when we're at, way at work. Uh, the typical day, so I get up in the morning, the first one to get up, and then I do what I need to do with the dogs, get them rotated to go to the bathroom, and then I let the foxes out. <laughs> And then the fun begins. Um, okay, wait a minute. I got to ask a basic question. Are you telling me that the foxes are in the house? They're 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 outside, oh. like in a cage. Oh no no, they're in the house. I probably should have specified that. They're in the house. Four dogs and two two foxes. Is there anybody else? 
I, I'm just looking at uh, people hearing the podcast won't see this, but we're seeing a live image of somewhere in your house, presumably. It doesn't look very fox proof, <laughs> just at a glance on a low resolution image. But I, oh, I, yeah. you must have worked that out. <laughs> I, I'm in lower level right now, which they don't go because there's too much stuff to get into. Uh, we do have certain areas designated where they can be like in our kitchen, dining room, living room. Um, and then their own bedroom. So we do have one of our bedrooms designated as their playroom where they reside. Um, and we did bring them outside quite often when they were little, but they- On a leash, I presume, or- Yes, a leash and harness, yes. But they frankly don't even want to be outside. And foxes are different. You know, some foxes love to play outside. Their owners will let them run around. And but ours just, I think, are just more like cats. They want to be around us where they know it's safe. They want to be inside. Sometimes they like to go outside, but they don't ever like try to run outside because they just really don't want to be there. Um, they, I think they really enjoy their pampered lifestyle. In the mornings, uh, I let the foxes out. They run around for a while. You know, I just hang out with them for like a half hour or whatever. Uh, and then I put them back in their room with their breakfast and hang out with them again for a little bit just to help them to eat their breakfast and go to bed for the, I guess, evening or morning of whatever you can say. Because foxes are mostly nocturnal. They do sleep some through the night, but then we also hear them playing at night. Um, but they start to mellow out and want to go to bed between like 8 and 10 a.m. So I'll sit in there with them a little bit in the mornings petting them. I actually have, you know, soft music playing for them. Uh, like meditation music where it's calming because they can have some anxiety and we just have to, you know, remind them that everything's okay, that, you know, you're, you're here, you're safe, we're protecting you, we're bonding with you. Um, and just, you know, I spend time with them, just petting them and um, helping coax them to sleep like you would, I guess, a little toddler. So they're in their room most of the day, just sleeping and hanging out and playing. They have tons of toys. We have a play area set up for them. And then after work, we come back home, we let them out, they run around, they hang out with the family, the dogs. And again, it was just a fun time to have them around us, just like family members. Uh, and then we go through the same routine at night. I give them their food in the evening. They go back in their room, spend a little bit more time with them, and then see them again the next morning. So you mentioned food. What do they eat? Um, they pretty much eat what I eat, except for cat food added to that. <laughs> high protein, high quality, dry food that has taurine in it because that is a nutrient that they can only get in raw meat out in the wild. Um, and without that, they can have some health complications. Uh, we tried giving them raw meat, but they just don't like it. So I make sure that they have that nice cat food. And then I mix in some chicken or venison or fish with it, um, with other you know assorted fruits and vegetables. Their favorites are like beans and, and green peas. And then some favorite fruits are watermelon, berries, apples. They also like to enjoy for snacks, uh, carrots, sticks, and cucumbers. So that's something to keep them a little bit busy. That sounds delicious. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm trying to picture now, you mentioned that in the evening, usually it's the time when you all hang out together. So how does a family dinner look like if you're trying to <laughs> sit at the table, have dinner with your husband, and then there's four dogs and two foxes? If dogs are somewhat trained and if foxes are <laughs> so wild... <laughs> How can this even happen? <laughs> I don't think I've had a peaceful meal in like two and a half, three years. <laughs> you just you learn to roll with it. Um, 
I mean, yeah, they hang out. They'll they have their favorite spots where they like to chill, either on the couch or, you know, kind of curled up in the corner of the living room or dining room. Just to again, they have a similar dog behavior like that. But then when they get rambunctious and they just want to run across the furniture, and which I mean, which is you know fine. They'll do their laps around the living room and dining room. But it's just if they start trying to bite on some of the furniture, then we gotta get up and say, you know, stop that. <laughs> They would at first, when they were like a year old, you know, it was constant supervision, constant correction. You know, don't bite that. Don't scratch at that. Um, but now they modeled that behavior after the dogs and they've been a lot, lot better with it. So you think that you didn't have as much impact as the dogs had on the or on shaping their behavior? I think that's fair to say. You know, they get excited, especially Anali, uh, when they come out to play. You know, he'll run out of the bedroom, wagging his tail, panting just like a little puppy, um, and come up to us to be you know, let us pet them and things like that. But they really like to follow the dogs around and um, almost like that annoying little brother or sister that would be in the family, just pestering the older siblings. So they'll do that. They'll follow them around, just trying to get them to play. And, you know, they, you can see that they really do look up to our older dogs. Is there uh, some kind of dominance hierarchy between the foxes and the dogs? So we have a German shepherd who's about, I think he's about 10 years old now. So he's like the grandpa of the household. He will put the foxes in their place as far as kind of grumble at them. I and mean, they've never been vicious. All of our dogs and foxes have always gotten along. It's just, there is like, I guess you could say a pecking order. So grandpa Saber is the dominant one. The foxes will still pester him though. He may grumble at them to leave him alone, but they'll still sneak up and, you know, bite at his toenails or grab his tail. And finale, <laughs> he just, he loves to just, you know, pick at them. And Gaia loves our other German shepherd lily adores her she'll go up to her and you know try to get her to play and, and kiss at her and lily doesn't know much of what to make of her because you know she, there's a lot of size difference so they don't want to harm the foxes they still want to play a little but they're kind of older they don't want to play like puppies where the foxes are still always wanting to play like puppies and we do we do have two younger dogs so the french bulldog and the pomeranian about a year to two years old and they just wrestle play and chase with guy and anali it's just really fun to watch anali one of his cutest things he does is he grabs a toy especially if when the dogs have it he, he loves stealing things they both love to steal things and they'll just run off and expect the little puppy the little dogs to follow him and um anali will laugh it's just so funny to hear his laugh it's just mischievous it's just it's just you can hear him saying you know i've got this you can't catch me come and get it and then the little dogs will go and get him and ali will roll over on his back um, and let the dogs just kind of wrestle with them and play so it's just the cutest thing ever so do they have like places where they hide stuff regularly or that's random <laughs> do you ever come home and find a pile of shoes i just recently <laughs> saw this video where a fox in germany i think she stole a hundred shoes yeah. a and wild, it, it was yeah, fox, it, yeah it was mainly crocs <laughs> so it looked quite funny very poor taste in shoes i'm sorry yeah We can't leave our shoes or slippers laying around because they do love stealing those. And again, when you know you hear their laugh, this it's this very loud, hysterical laugh. You know they've stole something. In washcloths, if I leave dishcloths on the kitchen counter, Anali, and I keep mentioning Anali because he's 
I'm more adamant about stealing things. Gaia does too, but Anali, he just laughs and laughs about it. But they do, both do try to hide things. Gaia tries to shove things in the couch cushions, and Anali will try to shove a toy behind the refrigerator. And it's pretty shocking how deep they can stick those things back there. So we have to make sure if we ever give them treats that they will be able to eat it in one sitting because foxes will cache things. If you if they have extra food, they'll stash it for later. So we need to make sure when they're out and about with us playing around the house and we give them treats that they eat it right when we see them. Otherwise, we found them before stashed in the couch cushions and we just really don't want that. <laughs> I, I have a very important question here. What on earth do you do when you go on vacation? Do you get to go on vacation anymore? <laughs> <laughs> What's a vacation? <laughs> Putting a tent in a yard, maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, well, how do you go away? Who watches the foxes? This is this is a major undertaking. Yeah, we do like daytime vacations, and you know where we can get back in the evening. Um, so we'll go up north and you know, go fishing, or you know just enjoy the outdoors and things like that. But we haven't, we don't have a setup quite yet where we could have a you know larger outside enclosure where we could kind of connect it to inside enclosure would be ideal. That I'd like to see someday where we could have someone just come and check on them daily. So maybe someday we'll get there. That's really the commitment. I mean, I, I, yeah. I personally, I'm not sure if I could do that, no matter how much I, I love animals. And <laughs> I, I think that I want to have them all. But that's really huge dedication. And clearly, you know, you are the human heroes for them. But I'm also thinking, how do they react to other people when you have guests? Because with dogs, it's kind of clear you can train them and make them accept other people. How did you go about it with the foxes? That's a good question. Um so they are very bonded to us and only us, I would say. When they were really little, we've had family members come over and be able to pet them and play with them and give them a treat. But as they get older, they just they don't trust anybody but us because we spend daily time with them. Other family members come over in the past, you know, a few months or year, and then the fox is just they just don't want to be around them. They're just very timid. They you really have to earn their trust. Um, for them to want to be around you. Uh, and then all foxes are different. You know, some foxes do come up to strangers and will let them pet them, uh, more so the Russian domesticated ones than some of the United States domesticated or ranch-raised foxes. Um, so each of them are going to have their own personalities, but Guy and Anali, they just, they really don't want to interact with anybody other than us. Well, I'm really Im impressed that they're as friendly towards you as they are, given that it doesn't sound like they've been through those genetic changes that only come through generations and generations of domestication. So I, I'm not surprised to, to hear what you say, but I'm, I'm really surprised to hear that they were able to adapt to you so readily that you, when you said you had them in the house, I, I, was, I was shocked. But I, I don't, of course, I don't know the history of the farm there. I don't know the history of their, their parents and et cetera, previous generations. You mentioned, you, that, you mentioned that it's not the Russian line. So it was started in the U.S., right? Correct. It was from a fur farm in Indiana back in the 70s. There wasn't necessarily the scientific approach like the experiment in Russia where they strategically selected certain foxes based on their behavior. I'm sure these breeders in Indiana did favor the more calm ones, but I can't say they took the scientific approach to intentionally breed them based on behavior exclusively because being also business owners, they realized people want certain colors. So 
So I think that may have been a little bit more of importance to them is getting the right colors part pared down because getting an all white or almost all white red fox is pretty rare. So Gaia is pretty rare with her colors because she's not albino. It'd be interesting to have some research done on that because as you probably read in the Russian experiment, those originally came from Canada on a fur farm. And um, so there's been some, you know, a little bit of contentious research lately wondering if those foxes really were, were domesticated straight from the wild, that they may have already been slightly domesticated already from the fur farm. Um, and that's kind of where we're at with these in the U.S. is they, they're not wild, but they're not done like the experiment in Russia. Yeah, they're, they're somewhere between domestic and wild. So I would say maybe tame, but not really up to a pet level. Yes, although there's been some genetic studies done in the last few years, and I don't know much about that. That shows, I think there's some certain type of gene that may show that domestic behaviors or traits. So it'd be interesting to have some of that testing done if they would allow us to do a blood draw. <laughs> so how does a vet check go? Since you mentioned blood now, so I'm thinking you do, I guess, need to go from time to time to the doctors with them yes. or the doctor comes. Yes. Yep. So they do have vaccines, regular annual vaccines, like um, a dog. They get have distemper and rabies. Um, and the tricky thing with rabies here in the U.S. is there's not an FDA approved uh, rabies vaccine for foxes exclusively. So we had to go to a vet who is knowledgeable in dealing with foxes to get the right dose. And then also some states may not recognize a rabies certificate as valid for a fox. So you're taking a chance with that too. So yes, we want our animals fully vaccinated and protected, but there's no guarantee that that will give them the protection that they need for any local or state laws. And that's probably another big reason too why we don't have them interact with strangers because they don't want the chance of them biting someone. Any animal, if they feel threatened or scared, you know, will bite. Um, so in addition to their annual vaccines, we did get them uh, spayed and neutered when they're about six months old. You know, they are male and female and always their chance of breeding there. And that would be cute and fun. But then I would feel it would be a huge responsibility on us to be able to find responsible fox parents who could actually take up to the challenge that we've been doing with raising them. It would be a tough chore. So I can imagine actually that because of your channel and a very big amount of cute videos, you do get a lot of people coming to you and asking these questions, asking where do they get the foxes? What does that entail? And have you ever recommended anyone getting a fox? Or do you always give these examples, which might even discourage, I would say? Our goal is to just educate people. I mean, you can't tell people what they should or should not do because they're going to have their mindset on what they want to do and do it anyway. The best we can do is just educate people saying this is the reality of it. This is the time, attention, and resources that you need to put toward having a fox. If someone asked me, should I get a fox? I would probably say no. But, you know, if they're really adamant about it, then, you know, these are the things that you need to do to make sure it's successful for both of you. It'd be interesting to see in the years to come if they do become more and more popular in homes or, you know, interacting with humans, if they become, you know, more domesticated, but is seen as far long as dogs have been domesticated, it's probably going to be quite some time before they ever get to that point. Well, it also take a concerted effort to specifically take foxes like yours, give them as much immersion as you've given them in, in a domestic environment, and then 
also breed them. And then, as you said, do the incredible legwork of trying to find responsible owners. And I mean, that just takes a huge effort. We're so far along with dogs. I, <laughs> it's as cute and beautiful as foxes are. I'm very happy to think of them out, out in the wild. And yeah, it would be quite an undertaking. And I hate to see it done badly. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, with the research of domestication, and, and I don't, I'm not a scientist, but what I've read is a lot of the dog domestication was kind of reciprocal. Humans and dogs needed each other back in the hunter-gatherer phase. Um, right now, it's just a luxury to cohabitate with foxes or dogs. So have you ever had yourself a point where you, well, regret it? or wanted some changes? No, I don't regret it. I probably wouldn't do it again, but I don't regret it. We've come to love them as our family and you know, being very compassionate and empathetic toward them and understanding their point of view. Again, they didn't ask to be in this house. Um, they didn't ask, you know, whatever. I just, for animals to be, or children for that matter, to be so dependent on someone, it really gives me compassion towards that um, animal or person just to realize that they completely depend on us. And, um, you know, there's no regrets to that being, having the honor of taking care of them. But yeah, they're definitely high maintenance. <laughs> so what was the thing which you least expected that you will have in your life with the foxes? I think probably the, just the constant correction, I guess you could say it's not necessarily discipline, um, but just following up again, you know, being consistent, you know, don't bite on that chair. Don't, don't try to dig that hole. Um, and there's, there's such a fine line there because, again, you want to respect who they are and their natural instinct. Um, but again, you want to also try to make sure they model the behavior as the rest of the family members. Just making sure you don't get frustrated with that because, again, they're going to do what they want to do. What, one thing that really stood out to me in the videos, yours and other other people, was their voices. They seem very vocal animals. I, I can't imagine them in the flat. You seem to have quite a nice place, a lot of space, and they have their own dedicated area. But do you think it's even possible to have them in flats? Um, yes, a flat being an apartment, yes, that you can't do that. You do need to have, you know, space dedicated to them. They are very loud. Like I said, Anali laughs a lot. Uh, Gaia, she's kind of a little diva. If, if you're bothering her or, you know, like the dogs want to play, but she doesn't want to play, she'll, you know, kind of whine at them and to like leave her alone. And, you know, they're very loud. Sometimes Gaia and Anali will bicker toward one another just because, there may be a toys or something they, they want to contend over, but you know, they've never been vicious to one another or to us. Um, but they do, they're very vocal. They will let you know how they feel. Another thing which I've heard, I have no idea if it's true is that did, do they have an odor as a general rule? Do they groom themselves in, in any way similar to cats or dogs? Or is there like an odor that they're happy with? <laughs> they, don't, <laughs> they don't adjust that for your sake. Well, exactly. So you probably heard that fox urine does have a smell and it does. Um, but you can definitely mitigate that with constant cleaning. You know, I'm cleaning their rooms out few times a day, mopping constantly. You can keep the smell out or down, uh, just staying on top of, you know, hygiene and making sure you provide a clean environment for them. Um, but honestly, they will mark as far as like urinating on food or toys, just to let everybody know in the household that there's that's theirs and don't touch it. I'm always washing toys for them and <laughs> 
in blankets and cleaning up after them, but it's just a full-time job. Just like you wouldn't leave a dirty diaper on a baby. Um, you need to clean these guys up just to make sure that they're not stinking the place, stinking your house up. Must be so puzzling to them. Like, mom's washing our toys. I just peed on that. And yeah. she's washing it. Well, I, don't, I don't get it. Like, why would you do that? It was perfect. I had it all fixed up. And so they, that's not, it's not something you can train out of them, you know, train them to use a litter box. They're going to, that's what they're going to do. They, no, they do. I'm sorry. I should have said that. They do use a litter box. They have a large litter box in their room that I clean out daily or twice a day. Um, so they, they do great with that. Um, but sometimes they just, want to do what they want, put it where they want. <laughs> How did you come up with the names? Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask that for, for quite a while. <laughs> sure. Well, my husband picked a Nolly because that is a Native American name for dark fox or black fox. Uh, he's got part Native American in him and he wanted to, you know, use that name for Nolly. And Gaia I picked because that is like um, a primordial goddess of in, in Greek mythology. I've always had a love and uh, for Greek history and culture. And um, so I had to name her Gaia because she's my little goddess. I have a question for you. All right. Are you ready to adopt a fox? Um, well, I am not. But <laughs> if you were, we can talk more to Christina and, and watch more of their videos. Yeah. I mean, that was amazing. Educational. I love watching those videos, but I'm not tempted to try and bring foxes into the house. It just... Yeah, sounds like it kind of takes over your life. And, you know, if you're loving it, that's great. But there are other things I like to do, like go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one dog could be already a big commitment. Yeah, it is to do it justice. But, wow, I mean, I'm so impressed at the effort they went to, the lengths they went to, the preparation, the determination. Obviously, they care about these animals. and They're having a great time with them, but that is a commitment. That is indeed, and... All I can say is good luck and <laughs> keep it going. <laughs> yeah, I guess I hope it doesn't inspire people to just casually go out and get themselves pet foxes because if nothing else, I hope Christina really clarified just how much work it is. Yeah, rewind that part about going into courts and <laughs> fighting the bureaucracy. <laughs> and foxes running around your living room and having to completely remodel the house around them. Well, but thank you. Thank you for all the enlightening information that you've given us and an entertaining conversation. Thanks so much to Gregor Larson and Oxford University for loaning him to us. And thank you so much, Christina Wemink. Wemink? Wemink? Shoot, we didn't ask her how to pronounce her last name. We're so sorry. Yeah, I'm embarrassed because I have a last name which nobody can pronounce and so I should sorry. understand. All right. Thank you so much. <laughs>